0: Hey, welcome everyone. Thank you for coming. It's nice to see that there is still interest. It's been almost a week and uh, still there are people coming. So it's a good sign for the future. I have to take it week by week and see how much, uh, see how long it takes for people to forget about us. <laughs> I don't expect that's going to happen, we're too too proactive about it, I guess. There's a lot of of people following what we do here, which is nice. It's nice not particularly, not just because it's what we're doing, I mean, it's always nice to have people interested in the things you're doing, of course, but... On a more spiritual level, it's nice to nice to see people interested in good things. We have a, a debate as a species, really, whether whether evil and good actually exist. Some people say evil and good are just conventions. Other people say evil and good are uh, manifestations or principles set down by a higher power, God. They may say that Good exists, but evil is just the absence of good. Because if they admit that good, if they admit that evil exists, then they got a problem. Because why did God create evil? So they say it's just the absence of good. And many people say that good and evil are just relative, and they're products of human uh, thought. Human um, culture. That there's really nothing good or evil. So, what do Buddhists believe about good and evil? Do Buddhists believe that good and evil exist? I think uh, for most people who have grown up Buddhist or spent a lot of time studying the Buddha's teaching, can see that the Buddha did talk quite a bit about good and evil. He, didn't, he wasn't one of the people who said good and evil don't exist. He did talk sometimes about rising above good and evil. So you hear about the Buddha saying that an arahant has gone beyond good and evil. Because they don't have... Um, well, well this is an interesting point. Why why an enlightened being is, is exceptional in this? Why does everyone else live in a realm of good and evil? And why does an Ar- is an arahant free? And it points to what is the Buddhist understanding of good and evil. Um, the the, the Buddha's concept of good and evil it come, you know it, it rests in this idea of karma that there is um, there are deeds. there is the fruit of deeds. the Buddha called this right view. A person who believes that there is no result from doing a certain type of deed um, this is, this person you know this is this is a wrong view if a person doesn't understand this or doesn't uh, accept this. a person has the idea that you can do a certain you can do bad deeds deeds that are evil and not receive a evil result or a bad result. You can do good deeds and not receive a good result. And it's kind of, um, um, therefore, a, a bit of a subjective definition of good and evil. And it shows that we have uh, we have a, a this specific definition of good and evil that says, good is anything that leads to a good result. Evil is anything that leads to an, a bad result. And so, on a conventional level, you actually have deeds that are good and evil right? um, you know, a person might you know if you kill a mass murderer or something someone's trying to kill someone and you stop them, you beat them up. This you might say is, is good and evil but but the 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 philosophy is the same. Whether you look at whether you look at it conventionally in this way or whether you say that no certain deeds are certain things are intrinsically good and certain things are intrinsically evil, the point is that the meaning of good and the meaning of evil have to do with the result. so nothing is in one sense nothing is intrinsically good or evil; it depends on the result. so this is a part of the reason why or one way of explaining the reason why the Buddha denied. Karma in in a Hindu sense, in terms of action leading to results. If 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 you step on an ant without knowing that the ant is there, or if you hurt someone's feelings without intending to, with with pure intentions, and they misunderstand you, or maybe they mishear what you said and they think you said something that you didn't, and they get upset about it. For example, if your intentions were pure. Um, it's not the actions, it's the the effect that it has. And, and so the question here is, well, if you step on the ant, and that's a really bad effect for the ant now, isn't it? So if you're talking about the effect, you know, karma is all based on effect, well then actually you're, you know, how can you say that, how can you say that uh, stepping on an ant isn't isn't karmically active or isn't a bad thing isn't evil no. stepping on an ant without knowing it would be evil how do you how do you come to this conclusion so you're forced into this this understanding of good and evil which actually turns out to be quite practical and quite useful and that is that good and evil are good is is something that brings a good result for the individual, for the person who commits the act. And evil is something that brings a bad result to the person who commits it. So you take out the victim or the be- or the be- beneficiary completely from the equation, which is quite radical. No? It's something that you wouldn't normally find in anyone's idea of what is good and evil, most people say good is when you help someone out, when you do something good for someone else, something that benefits another person, this is good. Evil is when you do something that benef- that, that hurts someone else. So we, we we base it totally on our on the effect that it creates for other people. If people have the idea of good and evil, but then then you have to ask them, well then so if you hurt someone without as a mistake if you hurt someone in unintentionally is that evil then because it causes harm for the person so you have to think deeper here and on the face of it it seems like doing good for for yourself would necessitate actually hurting other people this is you know an incredibly self-centered sort of teaching buddhism sounds very self-centered and in fact in many ways it is but this is the the the, link, the 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 key to it. Is that actually, as the Buddha said, when you help someone else, you help yourself, and when you help yourself, you help others. It's impossible to um, or or hurting other people doesn't help you. When you intentionally hurt others, or when you um, act in a selfish manner, you actually hurt yourself that there is no good that comes from being selfish um, that actually anything that does good for you is also doing good for other people or is is free from any intentional harm towards other people because because of course um, coincidental harm is is inevitable this you, you you can't talk about coincidental harm in terms of evil if you're driving your car and someone you know you happen to run someone over is because they were weren't looking or because they tripped and fell or something this isn't an evil act so the uh, the, the, the key is is in the intention so So the, the idea that you could somehow you know, steal, a, rob a bank, or something, and that would somehow be good for you—this is what we reject in Buddhism. We, we we reject the idea that being selfish, that harming other people, or or acting um, acting to disrupt or to 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 hurt others, that this would actually benefit the person. And this has to do with the idea of or the understanding of karma in Buddhism, that karma is a mental thing, it's a mental quality. When you have a, a mental state that wishes to harm or wishes to hurt, or is, is in any way disruptive, or you might say in any way clings, is in any way partial, in any way creates stress in the mind, this is bad karma, without even doing anything, without even acting or speaking. It's called manokamma, mental karma. Even at the moment where you uh, have, give rise to greed or anger or delusions, you know, uh, conceit and arrogance, when you have fear in the mind, when you have boredom in the mind, all of these things are evil because they, they hurt you. They, they disrupt the mind's peace. They create stress in the mind. and it's only because of these mind states that our actions become evil without anger or 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 greed or delusion you you can't do bad things so why robbing a bank couldn't be seen as, as a good thing because it brings you happiness is because it doesn't it creates states of greed states of of anger as well because you have a lack of empathy you you know that you're going to hurt other people and you crush that uh, that that the the goodness or the their well-being, you know, be, wanting to be well yourself, knowing that they're going to suffer, you crush, you create a dichotomy, you create this this double standard in the mind, and, and you feel it, you feel the dis, dissonance, <coughs> the um, stress that comes from this. So people who kill and steal and rob and, and, and cheat and lie and so on, their minds become disturbed as a result. You can't, there's no loophole, you see it. It is airtight, and this this is key to the the theory, because if it were possible to hurt other people and 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 benefit from it, really and truly benefit from it, then you wouldn't you you wouldn't be able to say that um, good is something that helps yourself and evil is something that hurts yourself. But because of reality, this is the the amazing quality of reality. It's kind of uh, well, very difficult to see and it's something that we miss a lot, and as a result we become selfish. The reason why we are selfish and why we are treacherous to each other, the reason why we fight is because um, we don't see that hurting others we hurt ourselves, and helping others we help ourselves. So the the Buddhist concept of good and evil is very much about helping yourself and hurting yourself. You don't have to look outside of this. If you understand what is in your best interest, then you don't have to worry about helping other people. You will always be kind, generous, compassionate, patient, caring. You, you will always be just what everyone would expect you to be, with, with people who look for you to not harm others, you know, who say good is in, in, in helping others and harm is in hurting others. All of this is accomplished by knowing what is in your own best interest and by seeing what is causing you harm. You don't actually have to consider other people. You don't actually have to be considerate. Once you are calm in your mind and and clear in your mind, and once you are kind and, and compassionate to yourself, you know, again, it's this double standard. You would never create a double standard. You don't feel the need to hurt others when you don't have a need for money when you don't have greed in your mind and addiction to pleasure you will never go around trying to cheat people out of their their um, possessions or out of their their pleasures you will never try to to take advantage of others at all you won't have any reason to you see that this is uh, this is hurting you this is why the buddha said when you help yourself you help others when you Help others, you help yourself because you you remove this this double standard where I want to be happy, but I'm going to hurt someone else. The mind, um, this mind state, can't arise. The person doesn't have the desire to um, to, to uh, bring pleasure to themselves at the expense of others. One is not able to. Create this dichotomy. So as a result, you, in helping yourself, you help others. So I thought that that's something interesting for us to know. It's uh, kind of gives us an understanding of what, what the Buddha meant by, or what the Buddhist idea of good and evil is. But what I really wanted to talk about, of course, is meditation. That's why everyone is here. Um, So this this talk on good and evil is, actually the point was that um, I'm happy to see all of you coming because this is a good thing. Meditation is something that is the highest good, we think. Our understanding in Buddhism is that meditation is the highest good because it is the purification of the mind. It is the highest form of self-help. It's the best thing you can do for yourself. It's like if you have a a, a river, if you consider yourself as being a spring of uh, giving forth water or giving forth sustenance to the world, to to the the beings around you, providing something. Then just like a spring, it's very much dependent on the quality of the water in the spring. If the quality of the water is tainted, then it doesn't matter how much water or how how far the, the, the water spreads, it 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 only serves to destroy it it can never be potable, it can never be drinkable, it can never be nourishing. But if the source is pure, then whether it be a little or a lot, anywhere that the water spreads any 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 thing that a person does is blameless. This is the point you can 't blame a person who is pure in mind because anything they do is pure. If they're asked to help, they will help. If they're asked to teach, they will teach. If they're asked to get lost, they'll get lost. They don't have uh, the partiality in the mind. They don't have the taint in the mind. Their mind is pure. So everywhere, everything that it touches, it benefits. If we don't practice meditation, we can do as many good deeds as we want, but if our minds are still sullied, even if we're generous and helping and so on, we easily become annoyed and, and impatient with others and actually cause harm to others in our attempt to help. We're arrogant, we're conceited, we are pushy and um, domineering and so on, even in our quest to help others. So if our minds are not pure, if our minds are not pure goodness has a very great difficulty arising or can't arise at the moment when your mind is impure. This is the importance of meditation as uh, as the highest good and as the best way to root out evil. See, and remember, by evil we just mean the things that hurt us, the things that cause us stress and suffering, that cause us to lash out at others, that cause us to be discontent with what we have and need more, um, that cause us to cling to things that can't satisfy us, to build up things that can't last. So, for this reason, we practice meditation. Now, what is meditation? This is kind of what I wanted to talk about. Meditation in Buddhism, generally, we separate it into two two types, and. You can practice one first and then the other, or you can practice, kind of practice them both together, Um, but there's two aspects of meditation that you need to become free from suffering. The first aspect is tranquility, and so there are some meditations that are solely for the purpose of cultivating tranquility, cultivating a a sense of peace in the mind or, or stillness in the mind to bring the mind to a state that has no distraction, where the mind is focused and clear and able to, uh, malleable or wieldy. It can be, it's useful or usable. As the mind in its ordinary state, as you see when you start to meditate, is quite useless. It's uh, it's like a, uh, this tool, but it's not, not straight, it's not strong, or so on, and it's all over the place. You're trying to get the the mind to to focus in, like you have a hammer, you have to get it to hit the nail. But if it's if it's waving and uh, shaking, and the handle is shaking, or so on. It's a rubber hand, rubber handle, or something. You can never get it on the nail. This is the mind. It's all over. No, it's it's not useful. You can't learn anything. You can't understand anything. You can't see the truth. We know that inside of ourselves there are things that shouldn't be there, that we'd be better off without. They're not helping us, they're not helping other people. And yet we still have them. So we start meditating and we say, okay, how am I going to get rid of this? And then we find, I can't even use my own mind. I want to use my mind to observe, to understand these things. I can't do it. So, so tranquility... Um, creates this state of mind. If you practice that first, so you practice uh, maybe watching the breath go in and out, counting the breaths, or maybe you see a light in your forehead and you focus on the light, or maybe you practice loving-kindness like we just did, sending love to all the beings in the world, friendliness, if you want to say, sending our friendly thoughts to the world, uh, these are kinds of, these are the sort of things that calm the mind down depending on what sort of person you are. Of course you have to make sure that you're using the right meditation technique. A person who is full of uh, lust, for example, should be careful with, with sending love out. A person who is full of anger should be careful about sending out, or, or should be careful about practicing um, loathsomeness in the body. So if a person already hates themselves, they shouldn't look at the body as being loathsome because they might uh, hurt themselves or even kill themselves. And a person who has lots of lust shouldn't send love out because they will become attracted to the objects of their desire. But, uh, these sorts of things have, have this benefit, you know. So if you're a person full of lust, you should practice looking at the loathsome parts of the body. You know, look at the body, seeing it before it is, and realizing that there's nothing beautiful about it, letting go of your attachment to the body. If you're a person with great anger, you should practice great hatred. You should practice loving kindness continuously until you can overcome that, until you can love the people who you, who you, who you hate, because that hatred is bad for you. You know, this is, these sorts of things have different powers to calm the mind. Anapanasati mindfulness of breathing is just in general a great one to calm the mind. The kasinas are very good, looking at a light and saying light, light or looking at a white disc and saying white, white. These are great for calming down the mind. So this is one type of meditation and it's the cultivation of a certain aspect, the the, the one side of the meditation. So one way to practice Buddhism is to build this up first, and you enter into great states of peace and calm and tranquility. And then, using that tranquility, you start to look at reality. You say, okay, using this, you forget about the disc, forget about the the breath or so on, forget about uh, whatever, and uh, instead focus on the body and the mind. So focus on what it is that's causing you greed, causing you anger, causing you delusion. What are the things that are causing you suffering. So, th- so, see, because at this point now you can use the mind, you see. So now when you say, okay, there are these things I don't want, let's look at them. Well, your mind is sharp, it's strong like a hammer, and you can break apart the, the delusion and the illusion yeah, that, that is uh, the self and, and these entities or these problems that we have. You we are able to break them up and see them piece by piece by piece because of the power of your mind and this strength of mind. So the, the other aspect of meditation is insight, this wisdom that arises when you look and you see. As I said, it's very difficult to do if your mind is not calm, but another way of practicing is to just begin to cultivate insight right away. And how does that work when your mind is broken? Well, at the same time as you're developing insight, you're also developing tranquility. So for example, we use this word when we focus on the stomach rising, we say to ourselves, rising. And when the stomach falls, we say to ourselves, falling. Just being aware in the mind, this is rising, this is falling. And this mantra or this word, this label, it fixes the mind, it focuses the mind. And it, in a sense, calms the mind down. Even though it, in the beginning, doesn't feel very calm, you find that eventually you have this dynamic uh, concentration where anything that comes up, you're able to see it as it is, and and it disappears. There's no liking, no disliking. The mind is just as calm as if you were focusing on a concept, as if you were focusing on the breath, or focusing on uh, a light, or so on. You you are able to, at the same time, cultivate insight uh, as you are also cultivating calm. And it's not to say that it's any easier. It's actually a lot more stressful, because obviously you're... 're you're, you're, you're cultivating you don't have all the calm first if you go off and take an easy object like the breath it can be a lot more comfortable but generally it it, it, it takes longer because first you have to focus on one thing and then you have to build that up and build that up and then finally come back and focus on another thing so either way is, is doable you know, the way the way we teach here the way we practice here is um, probably for for the reasons that it's well, one one reason is that it's more practical for ordinary people. So, a, a good reason for teaching this is: well, you can use it in your daily life. If someone gets uh, starts shouting at you, you can say to yourself, "Angry, angry," or "Hearing, hearing." You can use it in your daily life. It'd be a lot lot more difficult to just start focusing on the breath. And someone shouting at you, and you go in one, out one, in two, out, two. It doesn't doesn't really work. So it's the kind of practice that's much better suited to living in the forest. And in general, it takes longer to it will take longer to um, to cultivate, because you're having to first first develop deep states of tranquility and then look at reality. But it's you know it depends on the individual, and so there are these two ways. It's important that we understand. But most importantly, either way, the key is understanding. The greatest good that we can hope for, that hope to cultivate, is wisdom. Of all the virtues, just like the moon, just like all the stars are none of the stars are as bright in the sky as the moon. Mm-hmm. when you look up in the sky on the full moon day, nothing 's nearly as bright as the moon, so wisdom nothing is as bright as as wisdom no no good quality is as good as wisdom. This is because wisdom wisdom. Um, Unties the knots that are the evil in our mind. It, it unties the delusion. It um, it removes the basis for all evil states. Remember how we talk, how I explained how uh, what is evil. No, does anyone remember what is evil? Is anyone listening? What, what is evil? What did I say in Buddhism? It's thinking. What, what, what did I say, Jeff? Uh, states of mind that cause suffering.
1: Cause suffering.
0: And, suffering. and it causes suffering. Right. So, would a person intention if a person knew that something was going to cause them suffering, would they ever do that? Do it? Would they ever engage in it if they knew in advance? No. Would a person intentionally saying, oh, let me do this, would a person ever do that think, hey, I'm going to do this, if they knew it was going to cause them suffering? Because, yeah, you, you, might, you might hesitate and say, well, I know a lot of things are suffering, but I still do them, right? But the point is, you, you, you don't intentionally do them. So the difference here, why we do certain things that we know are causing us suffering, the, the, the theory is that we don't really know that they're causing us suffering. That all it takes is an understanding of that thing to stop you from doing it. Enough understanding applied to anything, uh, any evil, anything that causes you suffering, will remove the habit from you. The, the more you see, and th- this isn't theoretical, you look, you, you practice, and you sit, and you see yourself doing the same thing over and over again, the same mind states coming up again and again, causing you the same sorrow, the same suffering. That's all it takes. Look at it enough. Eventually your mind is going to say, Enough! Why am I doing this? What, 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 what good is it? And it, it naturally gives it up. This is an intrinsic quality of the mind. its You might even say it's a law of of the mental nature. You know, They have all these physical laws. It would be nice if we could come up with some for the mind. I think one would be, we should write them down, no? one would be, uh, the mind will never, or the mind will reject Will, intrin- will immediately uh, or inherently reject evil or reject, suffer- reject that which causes suffering once it sees that it causes suffering. That this is an inherent quality of the mind. The problem is that we don't see clearly. Once you see that something is not worth clinging to, you won't cling to it. I mean, obvious examples when you pick up a red hot ember, as soon as you feel that it's causing your suffering, you let it go. Nobody wants to suffer. Yeah, but, the, but, but this is just a, a gross example. The, the, the subtle nature of the mind is the same. Um, n- the, mind, the mind doesn't intentionally cause suffering. The only reason it causes its suffering is because it thinks that this is going to cause me hap- bring me happiness. It thinks that there's some good to it. Why do we cling to sensual pleasures? Well, we, 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 we think very much that these are going to bring us happiness or we feel very much, you might say. It's a very habitual thing. Because intellectually we can start to say, hey, this is causing me trouble. But because of the habit, the, the, this mind state doesn't last. The mind state arises, oh, this is good. And they're like, but, but wait, wait, wait. It's addictive, it's not helping you. But this is good. You know, the, the, the mind states are, are, are competing. Um, even So even though we know intellectually, the habit is still there and the habit can overpower us. If we stop thinking like that, stop reminding ourselves... And stop looking. We will go right back to our. We'll, the habit will overtake us, and it will. It will uh, proliferate. It will. It will uh, multiply. It will, it will become stronger. Through, you know, as we we focus on that instead. So, it's not to say that just because we we give rise to one one moment of knowing, that suddenly we're going to change our our minds about something. Suddenly, our mind is going to give something up. It's the case that eventually, the mind becomes convinced and it changes its habit. It gives up the the desire for suffering. As the Buddha said, Atanibindati duke, the mind becomes bored or disenchanted with suffering. So this is why the import, why wisdom is considered to be beyond uh, beyond the doubt the greatest. Um, greatest thing that we can ever gain, we can ever acquire in our lives. not just intellectual knowledge, but the wisdom that comes from meditation, which is what we try to gain I, whatever way we practice that eventually we're trying to understand and, and, and give rise to wisdom, to see the things that are causing us suffering. Just to me it's not some theoretical or esoteric or, or you know super mundane realization it's actually quite mundane. By seeing the truth of the mundane, this is how we attain the super-mundane. We, we, we leave behind the mundane because we, we give it up. Once we see that this isn't worth clinging to, that's not clinging to, nothing's worth clinging to, we let go of it all. And our minds become free, and this freedom is called super-mundane, when the mind lets go of the mundane and leaves it behind. So this is why we, we practice the way we do. The reason why we use the mantra, besides just focusing the mind, there's another reason to it as well. As I said, the mind is broken. You know, the mind is—you're using this tool, and now we're using this tool to look to to fix itself. We're using the broken mind to fix the broken mind, which is quite dangerous. You know, it's easy to go astray. So many people—they practice meditation without a teacher, without any guidance whatsoever—will actually drive themselves crazy. Or it depends. Some people will get to a point where they. Something strange happens, and they get afraid, and they stop practicing. This is one type of person. Another person gets to that point where they see something strange, and they become attracted to it, and they follow it, and they make more of it, and they drive themselves crazy. These two ways it happens. So you'll meet both kinds of person, Um, or both kinds of meditator, people who have gotten very far off track and have started talking to angels and ghosts and you know, even, even might commit suicide because a voice has told them to this. We had a monk who did this one, tried to commit suicide. Uh, and, and then you have people who just have stopped meditating. Don't ever think about meditating. It. You know, I got somewhere, it just frightened me so much, I don't ever want to do that again. Um, so, yeah, the, the the key that we're... The key is to to cultivate the to cultivate wisdom. So the w- without this um, this guide, you know, the mantra is kind of this this guide for us. You know? So when you see something, instead of getting afraid of it, you 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 know right away what is it? What do I do? What's that? what is this? You know, it's seeing. You know? When you hear something, when you hear voices, you know it's hearing, and you remind yourself of it being hearing. This is. The tool which keeps you objective—it's like forcing yourself to be objective. You no, know, any any crookedness in the mind, any brokenness in the mind is fixed because of this artificial uh, interference or this external interference. You want—you're interested in the light, so you say to yourself, "Interested, interested," or "Liking, liking," or "Curious, curious," and and you cut it off. You know, instead of saying, "Oh, I'm interested in this," maybe that's the way. Yes, this interest is a good thing. So you can never get off track. The, the idea with the, the mantra is that you'll never get off track. When you have a name for everything, and, and as long as your names are in line with reality, so you wouldn't want to say uh, angel, angel, when you see an angel. Um, you know, this is not what's really there. Once you, you know, as long, when you use the mantra to focus on reality, when you see anything and say to yourself, seeing, seeing, it keeps you objective. It keeps you from becoming subjective, from, uh, from identifying with or um, projecting on the experience. When you're thinking, it's only thinking. When you're feeling pain or aching, it's only pain or aching. When you like, it's only liking. When you dislike, it's only disliking. They don't mean that it's good or, that the object is good or bad. It just means that you like or dislike. So the use of the mantra keeps, the, keeps you not only focused, but objective, and keeps you, it's kind of like the ultimate security, it's the only only meditation that I can see that is perfectly sure for the meditator, because it's very easy using many people who do go off off track. You can actually keep track of your own mind and keep your own mind on track if you use this meditation correctly. It's not to say it's perfect and it's infallible, some people do start saying angel, angel, or wisdom, wisdom, and drive themselves crazy because they're not practicing, they're not actually noting reality. They start using the word and, and you know, driving them crazy just by using words for things. Um, but the, the, the correct practice of this is uh, incredibly beneficial in terms of reminding yourself, which is the, the core of what we mean by Mindfulness. Mindfulness the the word sati means to remind yourself. So if I ask you know, are you are you aware of what's going on right now? What's going on in your minds right now? Often we're not. Often we don't really know what emotions we have in our minds. Are we happy? Are we bored? Are we unhappy? Are we worried or stressed? We forget what's really going on. This mindfulness reminds us of what's really going on. This mantra. When you say to your when you look and ask yourself what's going on in my mind and you see that there's stress when you say to yourself stress stressed or, or or bored bored or liking liking or disliking or so on it brings you back it reminds you oh yes this isn't a problem or this isn't a good thing this is just emotions in my mind my mind is reacting to the experience it doesn't mean the experience is good or bad so this is the the purpose of the technique and the, the idea is that this technique leads us therefore to wisdom and understanding because at that moment at the moment when we note we're objective we don't see things with partiality we don't put uh, on rose colored glasses or um, project our own, our own ideas on things we are just totally and brutally honest with ourselves and we benefit from it. We, we, we reap the rewards. You see the benefits immediately. That you're actually objective. You're no longer playing games with yourself. You're no longer lying to yourself. You're no longer cheating yourself or hurting yourself. You're no longer hating yourself. You're just watching yourself and studying yourself. The best way to look at meditation is it's a study. It's uh, Well, there's two ways, I suppose. It's, it's either a cure if you think of it in terms of the cure for suffering, or it's a study, if you think of it as a study of of uh, what causes suffering, study of the causes of suffering. so here we are studying ourselves for the purpose of effecting a cure for suffering. we're not just studying for the fun of it, we're studying because that's the cure. When you understand yourself you you free yourself from suffering so This was uh, what I wanted to say tonight. I think that's enough. I don't know. Does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask? Otherwise, we'll just go into meditation. If you have questions, you can ask after meditation as well. Anyway, we'll do a half an hour together now.